Welcome to Nigerian American. My name is LD. This is my podcast. I have many friends who frequently get into arguments about the quality of today's hip-hop and R&B music. I've been a part of those arguments a lot in the past. I guess as a musician myself, it's part of your reality. You're constantly trying to make better and better music. Well, I was, at least before I retired. The argument about what is dope versus what is whack it usually starts something like this. <clears throat> All these new artists of nowadays can't rap for shit. And then someone gets upset and says, what do you mean? How can you say that? Usually someone from the newer era. Have you listened to so-and-so artists? And then a full-on argument breaks out. The argument starts off with one or two artists and typically broadens out to entire genres or eras of music. I've spent many hours arguing for and against, but I've recently come to the realization that most of those arguments, though sometimes fun or maybe even frustrating, are somewhat of a waste of time. They never really change nor sway opinions. They just help identify music tastes. I hate to say yet again on this episode that we are all a product of our individual and collective experiences, but I guess it applies to all facets of the human experience. Our music taste is also guided by that principle. In this episode, I want to make some arguments that many people will not necessarily agree with, but I want you to please give me a chance to explain my position. I'm not looking to change your mind. I just want to share some not-so-popular perspectives on how humans perceive, interpret, and ultimately decide what music is dope from what they consider as whack. It's very easy to imagine that simply because everyone around you agrees with your music taste, that you're always right about your judgment. I'm here to suggest otherwise. I'm here to say to you that art is subjective. Music is a form of art, and an individual's reaction to music is based on and influenced by feelings that are personal, tastes, or opinions. And these are all shaped and determined by each individual's personal experience. And I say personal because any type of art connects with each of us in very different ways, even multiple people who might appreciate the same piece of art. For example, a group of individuals may all agree that they appreciate a painting or a song, but each one of them will appreciate it in different ways and for different reasons, no matter how subtle or broad those differences are. And that is because each of them has had different life experiences that have brought them to the place and point in time when the question is being asked. No two people are exactly alike in their music taste. Even identical twins will have varying subjective opinions and thoughts on what is dope versus what is whack. I'm sure you've heard people say, that song is whack, or that artist is shit. I believe in the freedom of expression of opinion, but what is important is that I make a conscious effort to tame the part of me that is naturally inclined to want to qualify my opinion as a fact. In other words, I recognize and acknowledge that it is only my opinion. Recognizing that allows me to appreciate other people's opinions as well. 
Believe me, it's easier said than done. I get caught up sometimes and I have to reel myself back and remind myself that my taste is no more than an opinion, which nobody else in the world has to share. As humans, we all have implicit biases that determine our attitude, understanding, actions, and decisions in an unconscious manner. The biases are activated involuntarily without you even being aware. Recognizing implicit biases that may sometimes cause us to have poor judgment or inaccurate assessments allows us to think more clearly. The ability to intentionally control our actions by acknowledging those biases presents us with an opportunity for better decision making. This is the reason why I'm starting to see professional critics of art simply as people who seek to impose their opinions on others. To judge art means that there are rules to creativity. It suggests that there are specific characteristics that a piece of art must exhibit for it to be considered worthy of praise. And a failure to fit within a box usually puts you out of favor with the critics. Not only do I think it stifles creativity, I believe it may be the number one deterrent to artistic innovation. Maybe if more of us recognize that people should be allowed to be more creative without the fear of being judged, maybe we'll begin to experience better and less restricted innovation. I want to support my argument with some science. So I'd like to share some knowledge about how the human brain processes music. What I'm about to share is a simplified version of how it actually works, but I do so in order not to bore you with unnecessary details. I'll explain it as it relates to the topic. Let's start with how the brain works in general. Your brain contains billions of nerve cells arranged in patterns that coordinate thought, emotion, behavior, movement, and sensation. It works by gathering a flood of information from the world around you. The information is acquired through your various senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching or feeling. When new information is received by the human brain, it searches for existing patterns. This enables your brain to very quickly qualify and categorize the information it is receiving at any point in time. The categorization of information is what allows you to recognize previously experienced patterns. This is how your brain identifies colors, shapes, faces, smells, tastes, and textures. This is also how your brain identifies music. When you hear a piece of music, a few things happen. First, your brain compares the sound with existing memory. If it finds an existing pattern, it can easily identify the song and other things like the title, the artist's name, and maybe even remember the first time you heard it or the memories related to the times you've heard it and how it made you feel. If your brain is unable to match the song with an existing pattern, it stores the new pattern. This is how your brain builds and organizes its music library. The more you hear, the more your brain stores in its memory bank. And the human brain has a really huge memory bank and can store a lot of information. So I know I promised not to get technical with the details, but the part of the brain called the auditory cortex is responsible for processing sounds in the brain. 
but music activates far more in the brain, including regions associated with emotions, movement, and memory. Certain music patterns are common to specific styles or genres of music. Once your brain identifies a pattern that is common to a music genre, even if you're hearing the song for the first time, you can easily identify the genre it belongs to. Your brain doesn't only recognize individual songs, but music styles as well. When you hear a song for the first time, your brain analyzes and stores the sound pattern. Your brain also stores additional information, which it acquires through your other senses at the same time, including sight, smells, tastes, touch, or feeling. This is very important. This is how your brain associates certain songs with certain emotions. How you're feeling the very first time or the first few times you hear a song is important. It often unconsciously determines the emotions your brain may associate with that song. If you hear a song over and over and over, the most common emotions attached to the song will determine what information your brain stores along with that song. So for example, if the first time you hear a song, you're going through sad emotions, you're likely to be reminded of that sad emotion every time you hear it after that. However, if you hear the same song many more times when you're generally more excited or happy, it may end up replacing the sad emotions your brain previously attached to it with happier ones. So basically what I'm saying is your memory can be conditioned or reconditioned based on all the information your brain is processing whenever you listen to a song. We'll be back after a quick break. We'll be right back. Studies have shown that the music a human being finds most exciting or even most creative is the style of music that is most prominent on his or her playlist sometime between mid-teenage years and the mid-twenties. Whatever music you're listening to between age 15 and age 25 is what you're most likely going to relate with the most. The reason is that in most cultures, that is the time period in one's life when your brain experiences the emotions that define your personality. Most of your experiences in that time period will determine the kind of food you grow up to like, the places you want to travel to, the feelings you desire the most, maybe even the kind of person you wish to spend the rest of your life with. The music you listen to during this period of your life will, just like everything else, define your music taste. And you will most likely judge everything you see, taste, and hear in the future by the taste you have acquired during that period. If you look back and you're really honest with yourself, you'll find that whatever music or music styles or genres you were mostly listening to within those years is what you consider to be the golden era of music. This is why our parents think the music we like in our teens is mostly a bunch of noise. My dad definitely appreciates music of the 90s, but not as much as that of the late 60s or the 70s. He may not necessarily hate our new music genres, but he's highly unlikely to think it's better than the playlist of his golden era. He definitely would not be able to relate to artists like Migos or Lil Pump. It just doesn't fit anywhere on his established palette of music styles. Derivatives of music genres that he was excited about may also appeal to him 
because they're somewhat familiar to his established sense of music patterns, but he will have a hard time with totally unfamiliar music patterns or music genres. It's usually easier for younger generations to relate to older music than vice versa. And this is because younger humans grow up assimilating the various patterns and genres of older generations. And because most of what they will consider as music of their own golden era are usually derivatives of the previous eras of music. The fuel for that change is culture. And the interesting thing about culture is that it is constantly evolving. It will never stay the same, no matter what anyone tries to do to preserve it. Culture evolves as we learn new things, experience new technologies, explore new means of communication, and new forms of artistic expression. Because of the way the human brain processes, understands, and stores music patterns, and because of all the additional information the brain stores along with the music, we all have implicit biases that are mostly informed by what we consider to be the best kind of music. And it is mostly always the music of our own golden era, the music we enjoyed between the ages of 15 and 25. If you were born in the year 1977 like I was, your golden era is somewhere between 1992 and 2002. Most of the music that will resonate with you the most was on the playlist of that era. If you were a hip-hop fan, you most likely fell in love with hip-hop when Snoop Dogg, Dr. Dre, LL Cool J, Naughty by Nature, Tupac, Redman, The Fugees, Nas, Outkast, or Tribe Called Quest were topping the charts. If you were an R&B fan of that era, it would most likely be Jodeci, R. Kelly, Boyz II Men, Whitney Houston, Brian McKnight, or Joe. If you were born in the year 1987, a decade later, your golden era is somewhere between 2002 and 2012. So if you were a hip-hop fan, you most likely fell in love with hip-hop when Tupac, Eminem, 50 Cent, Kanye West, Jay-Z, Lil Wayne, or Drake were topping the charts. If you were an R&B fan, it would be Mary J. Blige, John Legend, T-Pain, Beyonce, Usher, and maybe Trey Songs. If you were born in the year 1997, your golden era is somewhere between 2012 and today. Most of the music that will resonate with you the most is on the playlist of this era. If you're a hip-hop fan, you most likely fell in love with hip-hop when Big Sean, Nicki Minaj, Ray Shermit, Kendrick Lamar, Fetty Wap, Designer, D.R.A.M., Lil Yachty, Lil Pump, Migos, 21 Savage, or DJ Khaled were topping the charts. If you're an R&B fan, it would be Rihanna, Bryson Tiller, maybe Chris Brown, or possibly Tory Lanez. You get the general idea. Chances are, if you ask someone from my golden era between 1992 and 2002 about the music of today, they'll probably tell you they like J. Cole or Kendrick Lamar. The music those artists make is relatable to the music of our era. It is highly unlikely, though, that people of my era would be able to honestly enjoy Chief Keef, Kodak Black, or Lil Uzi Vert. This is the reason many older heads talk down at the hip-hop music and urban culture of today. We are perpetrators of implicit biases. Though mostly well-meaning, we harbor prejudices against a new culture that we do not understand. We are professional critics 
who are attempting to judge today's creative games using yesterday's rules. The hip-hop music of our golden era was creatively judged by poetic lyrics, precision of the delivery, the uniqueness of the flow, and the head nod factor of the production. Attempting to judge today's music by those rules means that most of today's music may fail to pass our test of creativity. But it's a different time in history. Urban culture has evolved significantly since the 90s. What society considered culturally relevant at the time is not the same today. We've basically become our parents. I'm sure you remember numerous times in your teenage years, if you were from my era, when your parents either asked you to turn off that noise or generally complained about the music that you listened to and enjoyed. That is who we've become today. They couldn't relate to a culture they didn't understand. And just like them, we can't relate to a culture today that we don't understand. We're no different, no different, no different, no different. Another important thing to consider about the way the brain handles music is how the brain handles constant repetition. You've heard that one song that you simply couldn't stand on the first listen. For whatever reason, the song was just annoying or not creative in your own opinion. But one day, <laughs> you're in the bathroom and you're in a good mood and you find yourself humming to the song. When you initially catch yourself, you're almost disappointing yourself like, why the hell am I singing this stupid song? I'll tell you why. It's because your brain loves repetition. As you grow up from a baby to adulthood, you're constantly gathering information about the world through your various senses. Like I've said over and over, your brain is constantly seeking and storing familiar patterns. As part of our brain's function as humans, there's a constant need for our brain to process and understand what we see, what we hear, what we taste, what we touch, or what we feel, or how we feel. And as part of our survival instincts, your brain is essentially training itself to navigate effortlessly through the world by spending less time on familiar patterns and spending more time on unfamiliar and possibly dangerous ones. So if you see something often enough, your brain doesn't want to spend time processing it like it did the very first time. So what it does is it stores it in the most accessible part of its memory bank in order to be able to reach it quickly. Shapes, colors, objects, smells, sounds, and textures all fall into this category of familiar patterns that your brain recognizes. Unfortunately, music also falls into the same category. You don't have to like a shape, smell, or color to know what it is because your brain keeps information like that in the most accessible part of its memory bank. The more you hear a song, the more your brain will memorize it. Whether you like the song or not, doesn't matter. And if your brain functions as it should, the song, if played repeatedly enough, will soon become a part of your most accessible memory bank. You really don't have as much control as you would like to imagine. So when you unconsciously get the urge to sing, because of an emotional trigger from other stimuli, the first song that may come to mind is that song that you very well hate. 
And if it stays in that part of your memory for long enough, your brain may eventually trick you into liking it. Same thing applies to images and textures. This is the part of your brain that advertisers are desperately looking to capture. Coca-Cola spends all that money on advertising so that when your brain thinks of soda, the first thing that comes to mind is a bottle of Coke. Geico does the same thing with their insurance ads. Here's some examples for some of you who live in America. We are farmers. Dum, 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 dum. The farmer's insurance ad. Everyone knows that. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance. The Geico ad. Everyone knows that. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I'm loving it. The McDonald's ad. Everyone loves that. And if you live in Nigeria, dum 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 Indomie noodles. Everyone knows that. You get the general gist of it. Every advertised product is an effort by the advertiser to occupy some space in your brain's most accessible memory bank, such that if you ever get stimulated to make a purchase, guess which product you'll remember first. If you're a record label owner or an independent artist who's looking to become successful, it is very important to remember my next statement. Because of the way the human brain works, it is not about how good your song is. It is more about repetition. 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 The more times your song gets played, the better your chances are at success. Even if an intended audience initially don't warm up to a song, repetition usually eventually tricks the human brain into accepting it. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there is no value in making music that you believe your audience will enjoy. What I am saying is, After you've done that, it is of utmost importance that you get it played as often as possible in order for it to occupy the accessible memory bank of your audience's brains. This is the only way to achieve the mindshare that leads to commercial success. Your music is a product. And just like advertisers, you are struggling for mindshare with a million other distractions. I know, I know, it's hard to accept, but these are well-known techniques. It follows the simple logic of how the human brain works. The big record labels know this, and they constantly use marketing means to occupy the most accessible part of your memory with the songs they want you to buy. This is how and why payola is important for rotation and why it may never go away. We'll talk about payola music rotation, and the science of blowing up an artist in a different podcast. I hope that I've succeeded in helping you become more aware of how the human brain handles music and why we're so unconsciously biased in favor of our own golden eras of music and why we should refrain from stating opinions about art as facts. It's all subjective. I'm not saying you shouldn't have an opinion. I'm saying remember to include the phrase, in my opinion, Or more politely, in my humble opinion, in your statements, when you judge a piece of music or any artistic creation for that matter.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Nigerian American. Please subscribe and feel free to share this podcast. You can also reach us by our email, nigerianamericanpodcast at gmail.com. My name is LD. LD. LD.